This morning it's uh, Mark chapter 14 verses 53 through to 65 which is Jesus's hearing, probably a better word than trial, his hearing before the Sanhedrin. I want to read the passage to you but what I want to suggest to you is that the passage only makes sense when we understand it in the light of what has been building particularly since Jesus's entry into Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11. So once I read the passage, what I'd like to do is go back and just walk through quickly uh, a little bit of what has happened for Jesus as uh, Mark records in these last uh, two and a half chapters and see if that doesn't make sense of this quite stunning occasion and particularly where Jesus for the first time uh, actually acknowledges uh, that he is in fact Messiah uh, to anyone other than his own disciples. It is an event which I would suggest to you, just to hold this as a thought, I think what happens uh, here before the Sanhedrin is Jesus's absolute rejection and denunciation of Judaism once and for all. I think that what is entailed in this episode before the high priest and the rest of the Sanhedrin is effectively the end of Israel and that everything that attaches to Israel is actually now attached to this one man, Jesus, who in the very end stands completely alone. So let's read in uh, Mark chapter 14 and from verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the high, uh, chief priests, elders and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another not made by man or not made by hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you going to say anything? Are you going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him. And this is actually a statement with a question mark at the end of it. You are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power or of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. From Mark chapter 11 through uh, to the end of the gospel, through Jesus' death and resurrection, this narrative is full of quite stunning reversals and these reversals all have to do with the nation of Israel. I just want you to think about this. Israel carries this heritage. It carries a story that is meant to be the world's story. It begins with the calling of Abram and the promise made to him that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What has happened down through Israel's history 
is that they have increasingly taken this story, which is meant to be, as I said, the world's story, and have increasingly taken it to themselves as though it is, in fact, just about them. So that, in fact, if, if God is to do anything, if Yahweh, their, their God, is to do anything on behalf of the world, it is by bringing the world into Jerusalem or into Israel, not by God acting to take this story beyond them. In effect, they have failed to understand their own story, as Jesus makes clear even to his own disciples after he's raised from the dead. Israel is waiting for a saviour, but when her saviour turns up, they don't see and they reject and in the end, they kill. Israel has a calling, a calling to be the ones who show what it is within the world to carry the promise of God's uh, uh, decree that he will undo the effect of the fall, that he will undo the effect of sin and that he will bring both judgment and redemption to the whole earth. That's their calling, is to carry this story and to live in such a way that the world can see this story. But what you find by the time we get to here in, in this account of Mark is that Israel has reneged on its calling, entirely reneged on its calling. There is no one left by the time we get to the end of this trial. There's nobody left in Israel prepared to carry out the calling that God had given to them, first with Abram and repeated so many times down through the scriptures, except, of course, one. And, in fact, one of the greatest and most extraordinary reversals in this story is that the hope that Israel has, what it longs for, which, ironically, Jesus talks about uh, in the discussion he has, the dispute he has with the Pharisees, when they come to him asking about marriage and the resurrection, and, and notice, please, in the text there that it says the resurrection. Nobody is thinking about what happens to me as an individual when I die. But Israel's hope is that in the great day when God would come to redeem all of his people, then there would be a resurrection, one full resurrection of all of the people of God. This is Israel's hope. And yet, in the story that Mark unfolds, what Israel is waiting for they don't receive. And one man receives it in their place. So from Jesus' entry through to this point is the beginning of the great confrontation and the great clarification of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Just think about from the entry, Jesus comes in and is clearly understood in terms of the, the prophecies of Zechariah made around a return of David. The true king will come to his people. There's that strange, strange episode where Jesus, remember the, the fig tree, and doesn't find any figs and he curses the fig tree. The fig tree is an image of Israel. Jesus has come to his own people and they are not ready. He's going to make this clear in the parable about the vineyards, uh, vineyard and the tenants. The question of the temple. Jesus goes into the temple and he finds that it is, has become a place of commerce. It's become a place of defrauding people. It is not what it's intended to be. The greatest, most crucial symbol of the entirety of Israel's life is found wanting by Jesus at this crucial moment and is rejected. That's what makes sense of the following episode. You remember when Jesus picks up again, they walk past and there's the fig tree and now it's withered. And Jesus makes this comment about a mountain. Do you remember this? 
And so many of us have taken this passage as if it's about what I can pray for right now and whether I get what I want. That's not the context in which Jesus is talking. Jesus, think about it. Jesus, having entered Jerusalem, having been declared to be David revisited, Jesus having gone into the temple and said, this isn't it, it's time is over. That's the, that's the impact of his message. Jesus having taken an image of Israel, the fig tree, and said, it's been found wanting and now it is cursed, Jesus effectively says to his disciples, I say to you, this mountain, i.e. the Mount of Olives, i.e. Jerusalem, i.e. Zion, now the time has come. You can say to this mountain, take yourself up and throw yourself into the sea, for your day is over. It's finished. And then, of course, comes the question of Jesus' authority. And basically what happens is Israel, through its leaders, seals its doom by rejecting its final prophet, as they had always rejected before. It's on the back of that that Jesus tells the parable of the vineyard and the tenants. And it's saying, this is what you've done to everyone that Yahweh has sent to you down through the, through the years. You've rejected everyone. Finally, God sends his own son. The vineyard keeper sends his own son and is rejected. What follows then after that shows the truth of this. Jesus enters into disputes with all the leaders of Israel. And whether it's trying to trick him over Caesar, whether it's the question over the resurrection, uh, whether it is Jesus' introduction of Psalm 110 and talking about how is it that the Messiah, how is it that the one of Psalm 110 can say to, that he has a Lord, that David has a Lord, that the Messiah, in fact, has a Lord. Jesus starts to draw this to conclusion for his friends by saying, beware the Pharisees, they don't understand. They are your leaders. They're meant to carry this story and their calling. They have no understanding now, beware. And finally, can turn to them and say, in fact, this poor widow giving this small amount actually is closer to the kingdom than your high priest, your chief priests, your scribes, your Pharisees, all of your leaders. The most extraordinary reversal. On the back of that, Mark tells us the Passover is near and it brings up all of these memories of Exodus. All these memories of what God did to redeem, to liberate his people. And we start to see another series of, of events in which those who should know, don't know, and those who would seem to be marginalised and have nothing to do with this actually get it right. A woman comes with a jar of perfume, breaks it open, pours it over his head, and people say, this is utterly wrong, this is not the right thing to do. And Jesus basically is saying, this woman, actually, whether she knows it or not, she knows what's about to take place. She has read the time. She has read the kingdom. For I do need to be prepared for burial. Jesus doesn't say all that at that time, but it's clear as Mark retells the story after the resurrection, after the giving of the Spirit, he makes the connection. He understands that. Then, of course, Jesus goes uh, to an upper room, has his uh, last supper, his Passover supper with his disciples and makes very, very clear, drawing off the words uh, uh, out, of the, uh, out of Moses and also out of Jeremiah, uh, says, now a new covenant is being made. You remember the place of blood in the original story. You remember what it is for God uh, to make covenant with his people through sacrifice. Well, what is about to transpire will eclipse all of these. And from here on, by implication, the story that you will tell will not be the story of the Exodus, 
The story you will tell forevermore will be my story. And so it is that Jesus goes out into the garden and he's heavy with what it is that God has laid upon him. Just think about this. At each successive stage from the adoring crowds down through the episodes of Mark 11, 12 and 13 and into 14, you see that the adoring crowds gradually disperse. They leave and Jesus is coming down to uh, just himself and his followers. By the time he gets into the garden in Gethsemane, it's just him. He keeps going back. You know, can't you wait a little longer? Can't you persevere with me? He's out on his own. Then, of course, he's betrayed by one of those uh, closest to him in such an intimate way, a kiss. And then he is led away to trial. So he finds himself uh, taken to the high priest's house for this supposed trial, this, this hearing. Now, effectively standing almost on his own. There's one person who's stuck with him. Peter the Bold. Peter the impetuous, Peter who has made his declaration that you are the Christ, exactly the same words in exactly the same order as the high priest says to Jesus, but for the high priest with a question mark at the end of it, for Peter with an exclamation mark. Jesus has already said to him, you will uh, deny me, you will fall away from me. Peter says, not on your life, I'll stick with you to the very end. They go to the house, Peter, true to his word, is staying with Jesus, but down in the courtyard. And what Mark gives us in this story is an extraordinary contrast between Jesus and Peter. Jesus ends up on his own and must now finally testify. He stays silent, 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 until he finally speaks the truth and acknowledges uh, what uh, the high priest has said to him. Peter, of course, uh, uh, speaks quickly in denial of Jesus till in the very end he is silenced and he weeps. And in a sense, really sadly, Peter actually comes to stand in the same place as the high priests, as the chief priests, as the Sadducees, as the Pharisees, as the scribes, as the leaders of Israel, as the entirety of Israel. After three years of following Jesus, and it being so clear as Jesus unfolds his story that Israel does not understand, is not going to welcome and acknowledge its true saviour. In the end, Peter, the guy who stuck so close to him the whole way through, is left identified with Israel rather than with Jesus. So what unfolds in this actual trial, this hearing? Well, it's, inter it's clear that the crowd gathered in that room have already made up their minds what is to happen. They have, since uh, the beginning of chapter 14, been looking for a way to kill him. Mark tells us when they come together, they are trying to find some basis on which to have his execution. They have no jurisdiction to do this. Under Roman rule, they can't actually follow through on what had been their practice outside of Roman rule. They can't take this man and stone him. All they can do is take him before the Roman governor, Pilate, which will come, I think, next week. They can't take Jesus to Pilate with an exclusively Jewish problem. They have to take him before Pilate with something that Pilate can actually uh, administer the death penalty for. 
it won't be for blasphemy in the standard sense of how an Israelite will talk about it. Pilate would see that as an inter-Jewish matter. It has nothing to do with him. But if they can bring Jesus before Pilate with the sense that he is an alternative to Caesar, that he has a claim that seems to take priority over Caesar's, then they've found their basis. And that's what they're after uh, in this hearing. And so it is as it unfolds. The witnesses come forward and all of their testimony centres around the temple. Why? Because this is what has infuriated them more than anything else. You've got to stop and think about it. We, we tend to think of the temple as almost like a kind of a church building, like a cathedral or something. We think about it as having kind of peculiarly religious significance. But that's actually never been the deal with the temple in, all the way through scripture. The best way to think about what a temple means is to think of it as a palace. The temple is God's palace. The Psalms tell us that God is enthroned between the cherubim. And when the psalmists say that, they're not talking about God off in the heavens somewhere in the clouds. They're talking about the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, that acacia box overlaid with gold with cherubim at either end of it. And in the Holy of Holies, in the throne room of the temple of God's palace, and they're saying there God is enthroned. The temple is the symbol of God's rule over his people. In fact, the Psalms and the prophets extend that to say it is the symbol of God's rule over the entire earth. It is the center for Israel of their identity. It is the center of their existence. It is the center of their political life as well as what we would think of as their religious life. And Jesus has made it very clear that as far as he's concerned, this building is now a sham. This building is hollow and vacant and actually no longer carries any of its true significance such that God will act to tear it down stone by stone and there'll be nothing left here. This is what has outraged them because it strikes not just at the heart of their story, not just at the heart of their traditions, but it actually strikes right at the heart of the basis of these men's lives, of their rank, of their status, of their position in the eyes of the rest of Israel. And he struck right at the core of this and says, it's over. So it is, they bring forward their testimonies. And what's interesting is, even though the end is already in mind, they want to find a a basis on which to take him to Pilate for execution, there is still uh, some uh, awareness of due process. And uh, the high priest is concerned that the testimonies are not actually matching, that there's, there's false testimony here. They've got to get a solid case. Well, maybe, maybe to be fair to them, there is at least some semblance still there of feeling that things have to be done the right way. But I think the reason is because what's about to follow afterwards. They actually need not so much something that satisfies their own sense of due judicial process. They need to make sure that when they go to Pilate, they have got their story straight and they've actually found something that will pin him. I think that when the high priest gets up to speak, it's a little like you ever had a situation where you're there uh, with people and you're trying to put forward a very, very important case and you're working with a team of people and you're trying to kind of get, get to some sort of crucial outcome and everyone around you, you get the feeling that everyone's arguing in the wrong place. Everybody's running the argument from the wrong place in the wrong way and this really isn't going to actually get us to where we need to get to. I suspect that that's what's going on with the high priest. 
that he gets up and, and has the sense that all this running the argument around the temple isn't going to get us to what we need to get to Pilate. And so he gets up and just says, well, come on, say something. What do you say about all these accusations? Jesus stays quiet. At that point, the high priest makes this huge leap, this huge conceptual leap. leap. Nothing, nothing in the argument so far, nothing in the testimony so far has brought this point, but this is the one he knows he's got to go after. You're the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, waiting. And Jesus replied, finally, when he has gone to great lengths to never, ever say this, he finally says, I am. And what's more, Jesus says on the back of this, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And it's at that point the high priest tears his robes and says, this is blasphemy, we don't need to hear any more. Well, why? What is it about what Jesus says that actually clinches the deal here? Well, it's because Jesus draws from two extraordinary Old Testament passages. Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. Take a note of that. If you get time later on, I, I commend them to you. If we'd had time, I would love to read both passages to you. Let me just give you the gist of what is said in both of those passages. These are favourites in the New Testament. And of course, Son of Man is Jesus' uh, favourite self-identification. He always draws it, not out of Ezekiel, I don't think, but out of Daniel 7. Both passages are scenes of, of a court. That should trigger something for us. The scenes of a court in which God is actually uh, holding judgment over his enemies. We read in Psalm 110 verses 1 and 4, and the New Testament loves to make sense of verses 1 and 4. The first is, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for you. And, and verse 4 that Hebrews love so much is after the order of Melchizedek, you will be made a priest. An extraordinary statement, clearly this is about David, saying that, that David or those who follow from him will actually bring together the roles of priest and of king, which of course was never to be done. And the only time somebody tried to do it, uh, Uzziah ended up in, in, a, in a mess. Uh, and was judged for it. But here is the sense that God will do something at some point which will bring together a priest and king in a way that actually has priority even over the existing priestly functions and structures of Israel. The order of Melchizedek, something that goes back before the giving of the law, before the temple, before the tabernacle, before the sacrificial system, all the way back into the narrative of Abraham. In the second passage, in Daniel 7. It's an extraordinary vision that Daniel has and it goes like this. He sees four beasts, one like a lion, one like a bear, one like a leopard and then another which we're not told looks like any animal but we're giving this horrendous kind of Steven Spielberg image of this thing with iron teeth, uh, some sort of demonic dental work here, uh, a horrendous a picture. And this last beast is greater than the other beasts and this beast seeks to devour all in its path and out of it grow these horns, these ten horns and then another, a little horn, grows up from these and the th three others uh, melt away in the, in the face of this one little horn which is exceeding in its arrogance and in its boasting. Daniel goes on in his vision and says, But I saw one like a son of man 
coming with the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days and there given power and authority and dominion and glory. Notice in Daniel 7, it's not what we usually take it to be. Neither is Mark 13 in the use of Daniel 7. We always think this image is about Jesus coming back. Daniel's very, very clear. The Son of Man is going to the Ancient of Days. That is the movement of Daniel chapter 7. Not returning to earth on the clouds, but going to heaven, to the Ancient of Day, carried upon the clouds, there to receive uh, a dominion. Now what's clear in the interpretation that follows, Daniel wakes and is deeply disturbed by this and an interpretation is given to this. What does this mean? These are four great nations which will oppose themselves to the people of God. And finally, one will come with arrogance and boasting beyond anything that has been seen before. And interestingly, the Son of Man figure is understood to be the people of God, not a solitary individual, but the people of God, the saints of God. Now bring all this into the context of a trial. As Mark has recorded after three chapters of Jesus in speech and in action, showing very clearly that Israel does not understand its story. Israel has reneged upon its calling. Israel is now rejecting God himself when he comes uh, as their saviour. Then when he ends up at the supreme official, in the face of the supreme official of Israel, the one who should know the story and carry the story more than anything else, the one who's brought him into a trial, into a hearing to judge him, and to vindicate themselves, Jesus reaches back to these two extraordinary court scenes in the Old Testament and basically says here in this room, God is actually holding court and God is now identifying you with his enemies and you, high priest, you little horn, you arrogant one who stands opposed to God and all of what he intends to do. You will be brought down. You will see the Son of Man ascending on the clouds to the Ancient of Days to receive power and dominion over you. Can you understand why he tore his clothes? Why at this point? This is, this is, they've gone there to nail him. They've gone there to find some basis to take him to Pilate to kill him. They can't believe their luck that Jesus just hands himself to them with this statement. But on the other hand, it's not just the tearing of the clothes is not just we've got what we needed. And that's the appropriate response, the legal response to hearing blasphemy. But Jesus, in effect, nails them. Jesus, in effect, holds them in court. Jesus actually pronounces verdict upon them. You don't know the story. You don't know your heritage. You've reneged on your calling. And now you've identified yourselves with the enemies of God opposed against Yahweh and what he would do to redeem this world. And Jesus then stands solitary. There is no other faithful Israelite left. At the climax of its story, he takes to himself the whole story. He takes to himself the entire calling. He takes to himself the whole heritage. He takes to himself the role of having to do within the world what they should have always done. And that is to finally bring the blessing to the whole earth. And in the end, 
the reversals continue. It doesn't happen with a sword. It doesn't happen with a victorious uh, Messiah coming to rout the Romans. It comes with a man who willingly lets himself go to a cross and there to be strung up and to die. And that is Jesus' beginning of his journey to the Ancient of Days on the clouds as the Son of Man. In that grave and then in that resurrection, he is raised and they see but they still don't understand until the Spirit is given that Jesus now, standing alone, takes to himself all that Israel is meant to be and now accomplishes on their behalf for the entire world what they have always hoped for, what was right under their nose, and they couldn't see it. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz. Thank you.